So I'm Richard Greer, I'm a composer. Um, I'm also the current chair of the Scottish Music Centre Board. I am the centre manager for the Glasgow Academy of Music and Sound, and I am the artistic director of the Glasgow New Music Expedition. So just just a few jobs then. Yeah, just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that, that kind of keeps me busy. I can imagine. So, so what does a, a typical day look like for you then? If there is a typical day, um, it's it, it changes all the time. I think if I'm so I do four days a week at the Academy of Music and Sound. So if I'm in there, um, it's normally uh, catching up with the team, having then having a coffee, a strong coffee, um, and uh, seeing how the students are getting on and and checking emails and things. I think um, we we've now been been closed since the sixteenth of March. We've been operating online, and I think my routine is largely the same except that I found I've had a wee bit more energy in the evening, so I've been doing a wee bit more composing and things. So mm-hmm. Those are they're very different roles to occupy. Was that um, something that you envisioned when you were starting out as a composer? I think, you know, the portfolio career idea was always kind of bandied about when I was a student. And uh, so I had an idea that I would probably ha- lead a life where I do multiple things. Um, I don't think I quite <laughs> expected it to be so... Um, disparate and so uh, busy either um but it keeps life interesting I'm a, kind of, I'm a person who needs a lot of activity in order to keep myself entertained and engaged with things and I think the thing that ties everything I do together actually is um that I all these roles allow me to in some form or other contribute back to the musical community which I feel part of um, and help support and create opportunities for other people as well. And then that way you're not really in as much isolation as many composers would be. So you're, you're in a community, you're constantly meeting people, you're networking. You know, that's that's quite different to the kind of traditional idea of a composer where, you know, you do work quite independently of other people. Totally. And I, I remember having a conversation a couple of months ago because... You know, it's I work in a rock and pop college, and most of the music making and music creation that goes on in in that those kind of circles is is group orientated. You know, it's people getting into band and doing that. And I did a year at North Glasgow College before I went to the Rock Concert Tour Scotland, and um, I was in bands and and things like that. And we did covers and we did some original music. But for me, I I'm basically just too uh, too stubborn musically. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the reason that I compose is because I get to basically have it my way, essentially. Um, <laughs> but then there's a point where where you kind of let go of that. You know, you get it to a point where you're where I'm kind of satisfied with it, and then you hand it over, and then the collaboration really begins. So I suppose I'm saying that because you have a a solitary activity, but then yes, absolutely, these things allow it to happen within a kind of more sociable context. So it's a win-win situation, really. Yeah, and you you picked a range of pieces that we're going to talk about and I think one of the themes that we said that we would speak about would be things that influenced you when you were a young person or when you were just starting out as a composer and the the three things that you've picked there are are really different um, in style yeah you know the first one you've highlighted is Harmonium by John Adams can you just speak a little bit about why that one came to mind when I asked you to pick something that was meaningful. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, I had, so the context for this was um, I'd started out doing undergrad, uh, a BMAS in composition, and I was getting introduced to all the, you know, you know 20th century um, compositions by by a whole host of composers and all different kind of styles and things like that. And um, and I think when you, you know, when you go to somewhere like that and, you, you know, it's great because you're surrounded by people really interested in what you're doing. But you're also in a situation where you're suddenly 
you suddenly start going, it's, it's the first time you actually have one, you have somebody actually critically engaging with what it is you're writing and giving you active feedback on that. And you're also in a, now in a mm-hmm. community of people who, do, who, who write music and you start to assess and reflect on what you're doing. And, and I think, I, I think I, up to the point of hearing John Adams Harmonium, I had, I knew that I liked writing music for classical instruments. I knew that I um, liked a lot of things about classical practice. I, I'm a really visual person, so I really like notation. Um, but I don't think I really connected with much of the, the kind of uh, newer newer music um, until I heard John Adams Harmonium because it it was in a, a group class where we brought in called gramophone, um, where we brought in music we'd been listening or liked or didn't like, and we we all debated mm-hmm. about it. And and I remember it was Gordon McPherson, my, my teacher, who actually brought this in and said I was listening to this in the car the other day. I think it's a really good example of text setting. You know, it's the setting of uh, three, I think, three poems by Emily uh, Dickinson. And uh, and this thing just starts with a low grumble and it just builds into this sort of uh, mm-hmm. amazing machinery um, and exciting sound. You know, it's in a lot of Lydian mode and things like that. So it's got this unrest and excitement about it. And it just really the musical language of it just I just thought do you know what that's really engaging to me um I can do that and I think I wrote John Adams pastiche for the next four months <laughs> so <laughs> um so yeah so that was the context and and that's why why I, I picked it and you, you spoke about how you know it's influenced by these three poems um and I wondered about that you know you said that Gordon specifically pointed it out as a, an example of good text setting mm-hmm. But I wondered what that kind of meant to you, being able to take inspiration from other people's work, and if that was something about this piece that was interesting to you. Um, not directly, actually. I think it was a, a purely musical interest, and the the text itself is. Um, although I, I read the poems independently and and looked, at the, you know, I had looked through the score and mm. understood how he broke the text up, and I think I found things, the technical aspects, are really interesting. Um, but my my attraction to that piece is mainly. Um, musical in nature i think in terms of thing it's interesting um I, I suppose because i i came to a kind of decision at one point um while i was studying and i've not really revised my feelings on it but um that i didn't actually feel comfortable taking other people's uh, poetry that wasn't actually written to be set um and then set it to music so i i made a, a conscious decision not to do that but yeah that it's, it's strange actually that the biggest feature of that piece is the fact that it's choir and orchestra and it's uh, you know there's a lot of text in it well that's the thing I actually went over my head and what I was really interested in was the I suppose the texture of the rhythms uh, the fact it was harmonically static but with a lot of activity going on underneath it. And you also mentioned the in a in a very big contrast in style the Brahms clarinet quintet. Yeah great um, piece. Which great has piece. obviously got a very different <laughs> Yeah that piece came about because um, well, the reason I picked it is it's one of my all-time favourite pieces and we actually got introduced to it because we studied it as part of history class in, I think it was second year undergrad. And I just thought it was beautiful. And I still think it's beautiful. And it's really autumnal. And one of the, mm-hmm. I, I mean, my attra- it's interesting because my, my love of that piece is actually is, is an emotional one. And the thing I find interesting about Brahms is that the early, I always find that early Brahms stuff he wrote when he was younger, I always find that he... Um, he's quite unburdened in a way, you know, he's just writing what he wants to do and you can tell he's enjoying it. Um, I think I interpret it as he's enjoying it because of the constant music. Mm-hmm. And then there's this middle period of Brahms where it's almost like he feels this huge Beethoven-shaped 
chip in his shoulder where <laughs> where he feels I don't know whether he feels he has to live up to it, um as a symphonist or a concert writer. I don't know whether he feels intimidated, not good enough, what you know, whatever it is. Um but I actually actually don't really like anything from that period. Um because I don't I just don't think he's being um fully himself. And then there's mm-hmm. this, this later period where he, you know, he gets to a kind of ripe old age, and it's as if he just got to a point where he doesn't care anymore, and he writes these these absolutely beautiful pieces like the clarinet quintet or the intermezzo opus 118, I think it is piano piece, um, or the clarinet mm-hmm. trio, and he's just got nothing to mm-hmm. prove to anyone and nothing to lose, and it, and for me that is just so, I just find that really beautiful, the the sentiment of it. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I think you know you heard these pieces and they were significant to you at the beginning of your career while you're trying to find your your style and your tone as a composer but the things that you appreciate about you know the Adams piece and the Brahms are both that you know they are genuine expressions of who they were as composers which is really interesting um do you think that that's quite significant in for most composers is to realize that that's quite a normal process to go through you know to to try to find your own style and have the confidence to express that yeah uh-huh, I, do, I, I do but I think it's I think the I think the road to that is indirect you know I I um I think that you I think style is a byproduct mm. of you know doing what it is you f- you find engaging and interesting and meaningful Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of discussion, maybe maybe it's my interpretation, makes it sound like as if you're searching for a style, as in you're you're trying to contrive or construct something. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas actually, I think style comes after. Um, Gordon had a great quote for this. Actually, he said um, he said style is for somebody else to decide about your music and get wrong, <laughs> um, which I, which I quite like. <laughs> um, but I think it's I think it's a byproduct. I don't think it's the focus. I think it's what happens when you are at a point where you're starting to just figure out what it is you like doing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it takes a long time and a lot, you know, to, to, to figure out and and it's always changing. Yeah. yeah. But I think you get to a point where you're confident in your ability and experienced enough in, in developing, your, your language kind of comes out as a consequence, if that makes sense. So it's indirect, I think. Yeah, it, it does, it does. So so like yeah. most, most artistic practices, it's not very linear. You know, you don't go through stages that you pass, you know, through a checkpoint almost, and then, you know, that's you on your way to the next thing. Yeah. It's kind of a constant process of um, being aware of how you feel about your work and what's important to you. And, and, and um, I think... The, the third thing that you you highlighted to me was um, the album Hats by the Blue Nile, which is obviously quite different to the other two things that we've just talked about. And I'm imagining you didn't uh, discover that in a class at the RCS um, as part of your training as a composer. Or am I wrong about that? <laughs> yeah, no, I, no I, I did. I mean, we listened to uh, lots of stuff. Um, I can't remember where I first had the Blue Nile. It might have been, it might have been gramophone, to be honest. Um, I certainly took in um, downtown lights to gramophone and played it to everybody. Um, and I, so that album was really uh, meaningful for me because when I when I moved out, I moved out of house at twenty one, and I moved into Denison and uh, and flat shared and. That album became the kind of soundtrack of that period. Um, it was something I listened to quite a lot. Um, I find it really beautiful. Uh, things I like about it, I mean, it's ironic we we're talking about, about lyrics, but the lyrics in that I find really meaningful. And again, it's a, it, it's, it, there's a common thread with a lot of music I like where 
it's something that is quite harmonically static. If you take something like the downtown lights, you know, mm. you have these chords and it's yeah. just the top two notes are moving back and forth yeah. um, with this kind of kind of synth beat under it. And it, and the company it's, itself is quite simple. Um, but the singing, it's, it's Paul Buchanan's voice and expression uh, and the meaning he brings to, you know, the stories he's telling mm-hmm. in those songs that is, is just absolutely beautiful. And it's somebody making art and singing an accent that's from where I'm from, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. that's I find that you know uh, find that quite quite powerful as well. That was actually one of my questions to ask you about that um, the fact that you know the the Blue Nile are a local band, and I wondered if that had made a difference to you as a young musician, you know, knowing that it's possible. T- totally, I love learning about other cultures either far away in distance or time you know love history um i love travel um uh, but i think i think alongside that growing up there was you know in the born in the late 80s and there was still this kind of perception um that being where i was from being from glasgow and stuff had a, set me up for a kind of I, I couldn't go and do these things <laughs> i couldn't you know um and i think over time you know, going to the conservatory definitely uh, emboldened me um, and and thought, you know what, you know, everyone's everyone's just people, you know, <laughs> you, yeah. doesn't matter where you're from, everyone's just people, and all. so yeah, absolutely. I think having an example like the Blue Nile and hearing Paul Buchanan really mean what he's saying and being really expressive, um, and writing beautiful music, I thought, yeah, that's you know, and having success they had as well, um, I think that's that's entirely encouraging, yeah. Yeah, and I was going to ask as well, just one last thing about the, the Blue Nile before we move on to your next choice. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an album that was released 30 years ago last year. <laughs> and obviously you're talking about it being a very important presence at a, a momentous point in your life. So you must have a lot of memories that are associated with the record. I wondered if now that you've moved on and your life is in a different place if you hear the record any differently you know if if things new details have revealed themselves to you as you've kind of changed yeah totally i i feel less connected with it now um i think i think listening to it is kind of a more of a or less of an involved experience um i think what what's happened is i i've now understood it in a kind of wider context when you know when i was when i was very little my mum was used to Listen to music in the car, and the, and the stuff that she predominantly listened to was a lot of a lot of eighties uh, synth pop and new wave, and the thing that all these thing all these all this music had in common was was really <laughs> was really thick textures, mm-hmm. you know the the space would be taken up mm-hmm. uh, from the bottom to the top, and that still influences the way I I orchestrate, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I think that that's maybe what. That kind of ties that together, and I think now I kind of look at that and I go, ah, that's one of the reasons why I liked mm-hmm. it so much. Mm-hmm. And you've given me a perfect segue into the next part because you were just talking about synth pop and how that was uh, around a lot when you were really young. And one of the things you've picked is um, a piece by Yellow Magic Orchestra. That in itself is very interesting. Um, I wasn't aware of that, and so when I looked it up. There was some very nice um, choreography in the 80s video <laughs> that goes along with that particular. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wondered if if you could, because I know you primarily as a as a as a classical composer. So I was quite intrigued by the reasons that you'd picked that. I suppose you've kind of started to talk a little bit about it there, but um, I wondered if you could just 
say why that's important to you now as a composer. So the Yellow Magic Orchestra, Kamini Unikuku, which is a kind of synth pop love song. Um, the reason I, I think I think there's a lot of things that classical music has going for it. You know, uh, there's a lot of things that doesn't <laughs> or shouldn't have gone for it. But um, but I think sometimes it takes itself too seriously. And I know people who 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 don't like rock and pop at all. Um, and fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's part of my it's part of my musical culture. It's part of my kind of cultural heritage. Um, it's part of the world we live in. It's something I enjoy listening to. Um, and I think it reminds me sometimes not to take, you know, that. That you can have a bit of fun as well, and it's not that I, I think the Elmagrosters didn't take their work seriously because I know they did, but uh, I like the fact it's funny actually. The lyrics again, but you know we were talking about earlier, but I, I can't speak Japanese. Yeah. Um, I can't really understand any of it, and I think there's something nice. I find something quite nice about learning lyrics you don't <laughs> understand. Um, it creates a kind of a kind of a kind of mystery to it. So I, I just like the upbeatness of it. I like the synth sounds they're using. Um, I like the imagination in it. I think it's really well written, actually. But yeah, so it's it's a taste thing. It's just basically that has it got something to say and contribute? Yes, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and it just resonates and, and with you, me. You know, the lyrics not not actually being able to access the meaning behind them is is it creates a sort of distance between it and you, or or you find a different way to connect with it than say these other things that we've spoken about, you know, like the Blue Nile record where you were saying that the lyrics were actually very important to you there. And then there's this, which is from a place you you don't know as well, which, you know, doesn't have that immediate effect with the lyrics because it's in a language you can't understand. Um, so you kind of appreciate it in a different way. Yeah, I think it's other than the spectrum. I think, you know, something like the Blue Nile where I, where I, I can connect quite meaningfully with, with the lyrics and the way you describe. And then there's something like this where I can't, where I don't have that immediacy. It kind of, it's kind of on the, not, not fully escapes, but um, it's almost like you're in an mm-hmm. adventure. And, uh, and some, you know, it's like sometimes you want to, you want to be in the house, uh, and at the moment, in particular, I'm sure a lot of people want to be out the house. Um, but you want a bit of variety, and I, I think that's, I think that's what that kind of offers. Um, allows you to project a wee bit more onto it as well. I mean, I did look up the lyrics mm-hmm. in English, but I suppose it, it allows you to just react it kind of mm-hmm. on the musical level more. I think. Yeah, were the lyrics anything like what you had imagined from the musical context? Yeah, a little. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's they're kind of um, it's a pop love song, you know. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of yeah. t- tongue in cheek, and uh, and the tone of the lyrics, if the translation's accurate, reflects the tone in the, the music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, from something that's tongue in cheek to something that's definitely not, you've chosen Harrison Burtwistle's Violin Concerto. So, this is a more recent piece from two thousand and eleven. I think mm-hmm. it was premiered. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, how does that kind of fit into your current practice? The thing then? I really like about Bertwistle's music is kind of thread from the Brahms is that I think he, uh, I think he's just getting on with what he likes to do. Um, but I like the machinery and I like the unpretentiousness of it. I suppose that's why the Yellow Magic Orchestra appeals to me as well. It's unpretentious, and although on the surface I think Harrison Bertwistle's music might come across as a bit pretentious because it's quite abstract and dissonant and the gestures are odd and there's no kind of the pulse is sometimes quite hard to feel um but when you actually look mm-hmm. at what he's doing there's a bit in the violin concerto where uh you know you go in and he's got the violinist playing a, a little scale and after the scale's finished he he has the violinist playing an open d and what he does is he just changes where that d falls in the scale uh, and he puts it through the different patterns and it has a really nice musical 
outcome, you know. Um, but it's something really unpretentious because there it is. You can you can look at it. You can see what it's doing. It's not mystical. It makes sense. It's musical. So, in ter- but in terms, I've watched interviews with them, uh, and I find them really interesting. I find them similarly unpretentious. Um, he's very proud. For example, there's that, that one really nice video where he talks about growing his tomatoes. Uh, and his garden, and uh, and you know he's he's somebody that's just interested in notes, that's just interested in writing music, and but it's highly skilled writing as well. So it's something I can look, learn from as well. I can you know look at it and, and hopefully learn from from what he's doing. So yeah, and I watched a, a couple of those videos as well where he talks about specifically this piece. And one of the things that he said was that he didn't think he would write this piece because he's not a violin player. He was kind of saying that that was quite a challenge for him to do a piece on this scale where you really want to showcase an instrument, but you don't have that intimate knowledge. You know, like a lot of composers will start out as a player and, you know, you, you're you always kind of told write for the instrument that you know best because you know its limitations and, you know, what is possible with it. Um, but obviously most composers end up writing for instruments that they, they don't play. Certainly if you write a symphony, you've got to score for lots of instruments that you you probably don't have that knowledge of. So I just wondered, like, from your point of view as a composer, how much of a challenge a piece like that would be? And, you know, specifically when you're you're having to write for for an instrument that you, you don't know that well, you know, but you really want to showcase it. I think uh, something like Violin Concerto, um, which, which I, would, I would love to write, um, I think that that's where um, collaboration really comes, comes in. You know, I, I think, I always think that there's, the instruments have their own culture, and in order to effectively write for it, you you can you know you can know that the bottom note in a violin is a G, um you can know those ranges you know mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and and the technical limitations you can learn them, but I think unless you really understand the culture behind the musical culture behind that instrument, you know what's the repertoire like, what things does it do, uh, what role does it play. You know the difference between a violinist and a, and a or a violin and a viola, for example, isn't just its range; it's it's the whole persona of it. You know, and yeah. I think there's that, and then there's the collaboration. There's being able to work closely with somebody who gets what you do, and is is open to trying trying things out, and will you know constructively criticise, <laughs> um, and that you have some sort of friendship with. Yeah, and that again kind of ties in with these things that we've already talked about, about, you know, young composers and what's important to you at the beginning of your career and how, you know, it seems like a very isolating activity. But actually, you know, you personally have talked about how you really value the connections with other people in the network and that kind of what you're saying there. It, like in in order to expand your range as a composer, having connections with people is so important, and having access to to other musicians is so important to your career. You know, you can't just do that on your own. It's not really possible. Totally, and I think the other aspect of it that's really important to me is is to do with meaning. I did, I did a project uh, a number of years ago, and and I'd written this piece, and it just, you know. Uh, it was it was a bit too difficult to put together in the the time scale the group had for recording and things like that. Um, so eventually uh, the the group removed it from the the project. Um, and I and I came out of that and I thought to myself, okay, I think in hindsight there was a incompatibility between the parameters of that project and what I wanted to do. And you know, in hindsight, I wouldn't have done the project, so that's fine. But the other thing came out with it was I thought to myself, I said, okay, mm-hmm. imagine you're imagine you're sixty or seventy years old, you know, as best you can. And I thought, do I want to look back at all my projects and go, mm, oh, well, if I'd just done that or, you know, I, I, I compromised quite a lot here or 
oh, you know, I, I didn't really enjoy that. Or do I want to look back and everything and go, actually, every single one of those, regardless of any compromises or project changes or anything like that in them, every single thing I've done has meant something to me. Um, and I, and I kind of made that kind of promise to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that for me is meaning that I work with musicians who I have some sort of uh, connection with, uh, if I can, and that get what I do or are interested in what I do. Um, I want to see through, you know, um, I find it a much more fulfilling experience of walking to a room of strangers um, and, and working with And them. you never really know how, the, you know, these connections that you make are going to come up in the future as well so something that seemed quite small or maybe not that significant at the time later on develops into something quite significant and you know in your career where you you make big strides with another person who knows your work quite well yeah totally I I mean I I think the thing is is that yeah you don't know where certain friendships or professional connections or or things like that are going to um, develop or, or create opportunities in the future it makes a difficult conversation sometimes, or the pro- difficult problems of them, or, or challenges that you're trying to try and get over, um, much much more enjoyable experiences, I think. Um, and there's also a kind of there's a trust and a faith that kind of comes into it as well, in in the sense that you know every every new piece of music is an unknown. You know, um, you don't know what you're getting. Um, so I've always thought that when you commission music, whether I've done that with Ensemble or when other people commission music, I think there just has to be a kind of bravery about it. You just have to go, I don't know what I'm going to get here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you just, you, you know, you, you you throw it out there and you see what happens and then you get something back. And I think that's the nature yeah. of it. Yeah, exactly. And the last piece that you, you chose to talk about something that's important in your compositional practice just now um, it kind of feeds into that idea because it um, it takes a lot of uh, different influences and puts them into a new context. So it's a, a piece by is it Nicole Lizzie? Is that how you mm-hmm. pronounce yeah, it? Nicole Lizzie. Yeah, Nicole Lizzie. Um So how is that important to to you just now? I love uh, Nicole Lizzie's music. Um, I think she's just she has a brilliant talent for being really imaginative and resourceful and having quite kind of original ideas but also being able to carry them off you know she has the compositional chops mm. so for example that I, I will talk about bookburners but for example there's a piece she um she wrote a set of etudes based on different different filmmakers directors so there's there's a piece where she did uh, the Tar- tarantino etudes and what she does is she takes excerpts from Tarantino films and glitches them a wee bit and then uses audio that's in the film um, as the basis of some some musical idea. So there's a bass flute and there's a scene in Kill Bill where um, you know Uma Thurman's character is uh, fighting this person who has a who's swinging a, a ball and chain around, and um, she takes a sound from that and loops it, and then the, the person plays along. But what it does, and I think this is this is the perfect example. Of what I mean is that the you know you got bass flute, it's a big instrument. And the player, he, he takes it and he holds it like a sword. He moves it around and holds it like a sword, okay. you know, as a, and takes a kind of fighting stance on the stage. And you kind of go, what's going on? And he's got a mic attached to it. And what he does is he moves his head past it and blows into the mic. So you get a kind of sound. And then that uh, that plays along, basically, with the audio. And then there's the exchange kind of rhythms. And, uh, you know, it's that kind of thing where that looks just brilliant. Visually, it's kind of funny, but fitting. Um, but she gets away with it mm-hmm. because the mm-hmm. it's not a gimmick because he can't do that with the mic in any other position either. 
but also it's it's musically sound. So mm-hmm. so that's one aspect of it. But book burners, I quite like. She takes um she takes her older music and uh, recontextualizes it. And I think her uh, you know I think when her music's just great at drawing all these influences together and making something new at them, almost like you can see them fresh because they're in a new context. Um, and I suppose that ties in with like mm-hmm. mini mini Q. Um, in terms of lyrics being mm-hmm. something you can just approach it kind of originally um, and I like that when, when yeah, she does that, it changes yeah. the meaning The fact that she's got all these already existing musical ideas which she uses as an influence and like you know they're almost sampled which is something that you know everybody's very used to hearing in like popular music but not maybe so much in, in classical music um, and we spoke about you know lyrics and how you've kind of either written your own or you know specifically asked someone to write words for music that you're writing rather than using something that already exists but I wondered about music like using other people's music in your own compositions or sampling yourself even maybe is that something that you've ever done and and do you think it would be important to you you know maybe in the future musically? Um, yeah, actually. Um, so the piece I'm finishing off just now quotes an earlier piece uh, of mine and re- and recontextualizes that. And I kind of one of the things I kind of like about that is that the fact I'm sampling one of my pieces is not really relevant. It's just the fact that there's a recording of another piece getting played in it, you know, of a particular tone, um, and it means mm. that I can use material okay. like that and, and, and can cross over. And it's tied in with the meaning of the piece because, um, I, I mean, I don't want to bore anyone listening, but um, you know, you've got. Uh, cello and guitar, um, electric guitar, sorry, and the the cellist is playing along with some virtual instruments to make up a string quartet. And then you have the electric guitar trying to play along with the recording, mm-hmm. except some restructured recordings of this old piece. So you've got a acoustic instrument trying to play along with robots, essentially, and you've got an, uh, a person playing an electric instrument trying to play along with real people, but neither can really get any ensemble going. So that, that was the kind of purpose in that. Um, I'm... I'm Toying with the idea of writing a violin concerto uh, for Ben anyway uh, at the moment, and um, one of the things I, I I'm thinking of doing is uh, is taking you know just just bits of my other violin concertos I really like, uh, like you know like a like, like a beat or two beats of of a Beethoven uh, violin concerto, and then uh, maybe mm-hmm. a, a beat or mm-hmm. two beats of I don't know, Prokofiev or something something at copyright anyway, and um, and then writing, putting them, you know, a certain distance apart, and then writing in in the gap. You know, I always try, I always like the idea of, um, you know, in yeah. Jurassic Park when they they've got the DNA, but it's got holes in it, so they so they use frog DNA <laughs> to fill in the gaps in the code, and I <laughs> and I kind of think like that. You know, it's it, I want to write some frog DNA. Um, so that that kind of thing, but it, I, I think it's just I, I think the thing that's always always. Um, put me off from an ethical point of view is is really for myself working out what it means to me the difference between quoting and and uh, referencing and necking yeah <laughs> um <laughs> and uh and, wait, and wait, how i feel about but quoting as well because i was quite adamant when i was younger that every note had to be mine and i'm less uh precious about that now why do you think that so um yeah it's something i'm why do i think that is mm-hmm. that that's different you know? um because i i i think i'm so I think what it is is that I th- I think I'm comfortable with myself and now and, and understand what I do more fully and can articulate that and I think previously I think I probably felt it would have opened me up to some sort of criticism mm. that I wouldn't be able to respond to in a kind of full way whereas now I feel that I can I can do that mm-hmm. and I know why I do things mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah it sounds like a confidence thing you know 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and now I don't feel like I'd be stealing other people's music. I feel like I'd be saying, uh, "I really love this." Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's why I want to use it. Yeah, positive reason. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like I want to write a, a companion piece to the Brahms Claric mm-hmm. uh, Quintet, for example, for the same forces to be programmed beside it. Um, you know, I've kind of always been like that. It's interesting. When I was a student, I was I was um, trying to write a string trio, which which I found really hard. I think they're hard to write. Um, and I just listened to the Ravel uh, piano trio, which which I loved, um, mm. still love actually. And I remember a tutor saying to me, "Oh, that was a mistake. That will, you know, that will, uh, you know, it's so good that will put you off kind of thing." And I said, "No, it actually mm. just encourages me. It's because I don't. I never felt that I needed to." better be better than somebody i just needed to yeah be as good as i could be that is that is probably very important because i think especially with classical music there is a kind of sometimes a tendency to think of it as a hierarchy you know like this is this is the absolute highest level that you can achieve as a composer and it's exemplified in this person or you know and you should I, I I remember it a bit as a performer as well you know you get these pieces that you're just told that you shouldn't ever attempt because you know they're they're always going to be too difficult sometimes and I think that that's probably not a very helpful way to think of it because although something might require a great amount of skill there's no way you can achieve it unless you start trying it you know so I think that's probably a really healthy way to look at it you know not to think that something is completely out of your reach because you're not competing with it all of the time. Exactly and I I think there's I mean there's a there's a it's, it's pros and cons of things. I think you know classical music is elitist in loads of ways, um, mm. and and that is one of them. Um, and I think it's this idea of perfection. Yeah. And you know when you take something, you take something like Bach. Um, now I love Bach, but there's there's more to say about life and the world than any one person could say, and that includes Bach. You know, um, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how good he is, and you know you have music all different complexities and technical students and stuff like that you know you know you could break down and look at some being more technically complex or astute than others and all this kind of stuff but at the end of the day I think I think that only matters to an extent because at the end of the day all you're left with is meaning and I think that's all that really matters I think the the, the downside to having that kind of elitism in classical music in terms of well you should never attempt that's too hard that kind of thing is somebody needs to try um you know, and mm-hmm. how do you know in attempting that you're not going to get a second outcome that you couldn't predict, even if you can't achieve it? It kind of closes yeah. down possibility. Mm-hmm. And in contrast with rock and pop music, I see a lot of, lot of the, you know, a lot of the guitarists, you know, they, they look at, you know, something like Jimi Hendrix or something and go, wow. And they, they, they'll sit and try stuff. You know, yeah. it's not, um, yeah. it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter whether they'll be able to achieve it. They just want to, they want to emulate it a bit. You know, they want to, they want to experience a bit like that, a bit of it, you know. I think there could be something to be learned from that approach. So again, you you know you you talk about um, the students there at the Academy of Music and Sound and the and the things that you see them doing that you think are inspiring and obviously it's it's really important to you to work with young people. And um, the last thing that I asked you about was the an album that you think is important that other people hear. So something that you would like to pass on to other people whether that's you know friends or maybe your students um and you've picked spirit of eden by talk talk um what is it that makes you feel that it's important that other people listen to and remember this album um i thought god would start um <laughs> i i think that album is it's ambitious um it was mm-hmm. driven by an entirely creative or artistic impulse 
rather than what would have been good for their career. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, they they actually get, I think I think they actually get sued uh, by their record label because the record label said this is unsellable, yeah. despite the fact that it, it's it's brilliant. Um, so it's, yeah. it's ambitious and it's it's out of that kind of creative impulse, um, but also. Um, I just think it's really imaginative. Mm-hmm. And apparently they just went into the, the studio and they just improvised and worked and stuff uh, and uh, I just came up with this this thing. And uh, I, I think I would just want mm-hmm. friends or, or, or maybe think students or, or friends should ever listen just to... Just because it's beautiful, I think, ultimately. But I, I think it's a good thing, aspirationally. Really, again, really meaningful, really beautiful, really ambitious, really bold... Uh, people say brave, but I, I don't know if it maybe feels like that when you're writing. So yeah, I just I think it's I think it's a world mm-hmm. into itself, and it's, mm-hmm. it's one worth going to see. And it's quite a change for for that band, mm-hmm. isn't it? You know, in tone and musically. And I wondered if that's something that you think is important. You know, in 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 a career, is to be able to recognise when it's kind of necessary to you know respond to a change like that or you know slightly reinvent yourself or to at least be adaptable yeah I think so two things I think um I think when I was younger I kind of thought that there's this fixed me that I need to get to you know like at the core of the tree or something and to kind of hammer away at it or a piece of rock by diamond mm. there it is I found it that's me sorted and I think the thing is you you just you learn how to connect <laughs> with you learn how to connect with yourself um as cheesy as it sounds and then you mm-hmm. understand what you're about and then you realize you're a continuum and you change constantly, and I think you just have to truthfully reflect whatever you look like at any one time. Um, it's, it's very difficult, I think, probably to to answer, or for anybody, but as you're still going through your career, to, to, to know, because really it's only with hindsight, I suppose, that you can, because we're looking at the album by Talk Talk and speaking about it in terms of, you know, how significant it was in their career, but I mean, those are things that those people who were deeply involved in the creation of that work wouldn't have been able to tell you about at the time or maybe even five or ten years later it's only really with a lot of hindsight that we're looking back on the work and realizing where it kind of fits within a broader context so I suppose as a question for your own career that is actually quite hard to answer yeah totally I I think there's an interesting thing I mean we were talking a little bit a little minute ago about um the kind of perfection in classical music and 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 I remember when I was younger in terms of composition as well, and I was getting, I was the music I was writing was starting to stagnate a little, starting to get a little, um, a little dull. You get really good at doing something a particular way, and you get really skillful at it, and then your engagement starts to decline with it. Mm-hmm. So, you, so the the kind of freshness and imagination in it yeah. declines, mm-hmm. and at that point you need to go somewhere else. And the way I do that mm-hmm. is if I find that's happening, I tend to write uh, short pieces. And that's something I can now do in a kind of self-aware, self-aware way because I recognise the signs of that. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I think it's 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 being able to step out of comfort zone as well. There's a kind of a there's a kind of strange addiction you get to to stick with what you know. And I think sometimes you need to you need to just step out of that and enjoy the enjoy the freedom. And I would say as well, I I think one of the downsides of composers uh, of the kind of composer culture is that you um, you know, squirrelly in in the house, and then you produce something that's meant to be perfect at the end, <laughs> and refined in your final version. Because because orchestras or and groups that don't specialise in music are are used to playing music that's been really been trialled and tested over two hundred years, um, mm-hmm. and had all the the bumps ironed mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And uh, and suddenly you come in with all these new 
bumps. Um, so I think it's important to to people to step out comfort zone, take risks, uh, try something new, and have that as part as a healthy part of your practice. And again, tying back to talking about collaboration and working with people and having those kind of relationships is that is that that creates an environment where you can do that mm-hmm. um more readily i think or you maybe feel you can do that more readily and i think that's very yeah. very important well thank you very much for talking to me today I thanks for having me we'll, we'll make a, a playlist of all the pieces that you've chosen so that uh, people can go and listen to them and obviously i would very much recommend that everybody goes and watches the video of the yellow magic orchestra because i think we need some light relief (laughs) at this time (laughs) but yeah i'll let you get on with the rest of your afternoon uh but thank you very much for that enjoyed it thanks yeah me too thanks thanks laura thanks for thanks for having me i appreciate